Well, this is the final message in our Rebuild and Rejoice series. Uh, so we've been in the book of Nehemiah for much of this term. So if you could grab your Bible and turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, that'd be great. Nehemiah chapter 13. Uh, the book of Nehemiah mostly is pretty neat. You have six chapters of rebuild and six chapters of rejoice. And so we've had six chapters where they're rebuilding the walls. The people of God have been vulnerable and fragile and weak, but then they rebuild the walls. And that culminates at the end of chapter six in this statement. So the wall was finished on this day of the month. And then you have six chapters of rejoice where the people's worship gets restored. They confess their sin. They sort out their relationship with God. They commit to God. They pray and then they sing. And that finishes with that verse we saw last week. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Six chapters of rebuild, six chapters of rejoice, and then there's a 13th chapter, tragically. And there often is. Like in scripture, that often happens. Where you feel like the story's resolved and everybody's going to worship God properly. And then, no, there's a 13th chapter. And it's often true in life, isn't it? That you, you feel like this situation, there's a crisis, there's a difficulty. And then we trusted God and we did this and then we celebrated it. And it looked like things were all going to be fine. And then, argh, the problem is still here because the deeper issue that Israel have is not our walls are broken down or we're not singing or even that we've not prayed properly or whatever. The problem is deeper. The problem is that sin is still there and particularly idolatry, the worship of other gods, the temptation we have in our hearts or Israel has in their hearts to worship someone other than God, that temptation is still there. Idolatry is still a threat. And so you have six chapters of rebuild, six chapters of rejoice and then idolatry is still with us and it's still a problem the walls are back the songs are back but the sin is back as well and it's so challenging for us as we read a book like this to think this is not how I wanted the book to end and what happens in chapter 13 is basically a cycle of two things happening over and over again that Israel get drawn into an idolatrous practice of some sort a practice that is bound up with the worship of other gods and then Nehemiah confronts them and says, what are you doing? And sometimes confronts them pretty aggressively. He's beating people up. He's pulling out their hair. I mean, it's like, we'll see. It's pretty fiery. But then you get another area of idolatry and another confrontation and then another and another. It just keeps happening. It happens with four things particularly. It's what's being stored in the temple chambers, which sounds a bit random, but we'll get to that. With tithes and offerings, giving of money, basically. The Sabbath, the observance of the seventh day. And then with marrying pagan women, uh, which happens at the beginning and the end of the chapter, that's the one that always bothers people today because people are worried it's banning, that the Bible bans interracial marriage or something. That's not remotely what's going on here. There's plenty of interracial marriage in the Bible and that's not the issue. Race in a modern sense didn't even exist in scripture. That's not the issue here. It's about marrying people who don't worship God and worship other gods and the consequences that come from that in Israel's context. But we'll come to that in a moment. But ultimately, this is a passage about idolatry. It's a passage about how the, the hearts of the people of God are caused to go after other gods over and over again, using all kinds of different excuses or rationales for doing so. And the strange thing is that the idols that people serve, and particularly the ways in which those idols get smoked out, have hardly changed in two and a half thousand years. So the way, we'll see as we read it, the ways in which you think, Sabbath, temple chambers, what's that got to do with me? Think, no, trust me, the ways in which the idols of our hearts get exposed or smoked out for what they are has hardly changed from Nehemiah's day to ours. And so this morning I want to talk about what I'm going to call the idolatry fuse. The idolatry fuse. We're going to read Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's kind of long, but track with it because there's a lot in here that 
actually will speak, when we understand what's going on, will really speak to our own day and our own risk of worshipping other gods. Nehemiah 13 and verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they didn't meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned that curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, just to say, separating people from foreign descent, we know from the book of Ezra that this is not a, a, an ethnic prohibition or a racial one in modern language. This is a religious prohibition. So we know that there are plenty of people who are of foreign parentage who are still in Israel because they've, con- they've effectively converted to worship the real God. This is an issue like Ruth was a Moabite. So one of these banned peoples. But she worships the Lord, so she's fine. So it's not about people who are from other nations as much as it's about people who worship other gods. That's the issue. Verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they'd previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. In other words, this is a part of the temple where you're supposed to keep the contributions for the priests who worship God. And instead, someone's using it to feather the nest of a family member and just putting loads of stash in there for someone he's related to. So it's an abuse of power, really, to uh, promote your own family. While this was taking place, I wasn't in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out the chamber. Then I gave orders. They cleansed the chambers. And I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So he's restoring temple worship because the temple has been abused for the stash of a relative of one of the priests. I also found out that the portions of the Levites hadn't been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and don't wipe out my good deeds, which I've done for the house of my God and for his service." In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. People are trading on the Sabbath day. and That's banned, right? They're not allowed to do that as Jews, but they're doing it anyway. They're letting foreign people sell to them as well. Verse 17. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your fathers act in this way? Didn't our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they shouldn't be opened until after the Sabbath. 
It's basically like putting them in lockdown to make sure people don't do this. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. He doesn't mean, I'm going to lay hands on you. He's not going to lay hands on you, right? I am furious. These people are camping outside the city to try and peddle stuff and break the Sabbath. From that time on, they didn't come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who'd married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they couldn't speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them swear in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Didn't Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? And among all the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. In other words, he's a classic example. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of God. The temple of God is sacred space. Right? Jerusalem is a holy city, and God's people are a holy priesthood, and a, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. So in this chapter, the problem, all these problems we're seeing about trading on the Sabbath, about intermarriage, about the use of the temple, about tithes and offerings, the problem is not really just that Israel isn't keeping the rules. The problem is that Israel is desecrating holy space, the holy land, the holy city, the holy temple, the holy priesthood. It is treating as cheap and common something which God has sanctified and said is holy. So the problem really is not a lack of, it's not rule breaking, it's sacrilege, right? It's idolatry. And there are four particular areas I mentioned before where Israel is compromising. We might, in more modern terms, we might say corruption, stinginess with respect to the offerings, Sabbath trade, so trading on, on, the, on the Saturday, and marrying pagan women. Corruption, stinginess, Sabbath trade, and marrying pagan women. And all four of those, actually, when you read the whole Old Testament, they're classic recurring problems. This is not the only time they come up. The book of Malachi is written at the same kind of time, and the same issues are very prominent in the book of Malachi. And what happens is they seem to be the areas where if Israel or, or her leaders are turning away from God, those will be some of the first things to go. Right? So when people are worshipping God, it's all fine. You don't get those problems. But if those problems are rising up, what happens quickly, you will notice the people are turning away from God. These are some of the first things that will, will happen. There'll be some of the early warning signs that idolatry is setting root in the people. People will be corrupt in favour of their family. Now, this is still true. It's particularly true in a, 
In a Middle Eastern culture like this, two and a half thousand years ago, your family is the most important thing in the world. If you, if you don't worship God, then one of the first things you will start doing is being corrupt in favor of family members, which is what one of these guys is doing. Oh, I know this is meant for the holy things. I'm going to use it to store, effectively store stuff for one of my uh, relatives. So that corruption in faith, that's one of the first things that will happen if people aren't worshiping the Lord. People will be corrupt in favor of their family. That's what Eli did in the Old Testament. It's a common problem. People will keep for themselves what belongs to God. Instead of offering it to him, they'll hoard it. Well, that's what Achan did, if you know that story. And it happens a lot in the Old Testament. People will profane the Sabbath. Again, this happens loads in the Old Testament. If people's hearts are turning from God, the Sabbath observance is one of the first things to go. People say, why on earth would I keep one day where I can't do any work? It's not, in a, again, in their culture, they don't have salaries. So it's not like there's motive to say, let's work on, a, the, on the special day. They say, no, if I work more, I get more money. Like, this is, ultimately, this is greed and it's a lack of faith that's driving that. And again, that happens a lot in the Old Testament. And also, the other thing that'll happen is if people stop worshipping the Lord, they won't care who God says they can marry. So what, what does it matter? I think she's beautiful. I think she, I like her. I'll, I'll marry her. That, you see that loads. Solomon, Samson, many others. And so it's, this chapter is not unique. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty direct chapter and it's a strange one to read. But actually, it reflects a much broader problem in Old Testament worship, which is that when Israel's heart is drawn after other gods, these four problems, corruption, neglecting the offerings through what I'm called stinginess, I suppose, trading on the Sabbath and marrying pagan women, these are the things that will happen when the people of God's hearts have gone after other gods. And so they are what I'm calling idolatry fuses. You know what a fuse is, right? So a fuse is something that's put into the circuit in order to make sure that if the, if the circuit's going to break anywhere, it's going to break here. So if you get a surge of power, instead of damaging the appliance, the surge of power will snap the fuse, and the appliance will be fine. So you don't lose your, your Hoover or your microwave or your TV, you lose just this little fuse, which costs a few pence, and you can replace it. And it's designed like that. It's like a, it's like a tripwire, isn't it? It's a, like a place where the whole thing can just flick off because it's the most fragile, vulnerable part of the system, and it's the first thing that will go. It's designed that way. And in every culture, there are idolatry fuses. There are things you say, do you know what? If your heart is going to go after another god, it will almost certainly break here. That is, this is one of the very first things that will happen to you. And it's an area in your culture that's particularly vulnerable to the pressures of that culture. So if you withstand that pressure, you'll be fine. But if it's going to break, if your worship to God is going to break anywhere, it'll probably break there. All right? And actually, in Nehemiah's case, it's roughly the same issues we have today. M money, marriage, we probably add power as well. But they all come up in this story. Who, who do you marry? How are you going to use your money? Are you going to use your power in favor of people you like as opposed to people you don't? And money, sex, and power are still the big areas where you'd say, if your life is uncompromised there, you'll be fine. But... To be honest, if you're not, that your heart begins to drift after God. That's where it will break. And in Nehemiah 13, this is, a, this is a story about four examples of the idolatry fuse in Nehemiah's day. Here's another analogy, which I kind of found fun because it's a fun story. So you may have heard the rock band Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen famously played on uh, Michael Jackson's Beat It. Then Van Halen, they, they, they do that song. Come on and jump. Dun, 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 dun. You know, if you don't know them, 
yeah, that impersonation may not have helped you. But I was told that I didn't sing enough in last week's message on singing. So there you go. But anyway, they had this thing. You may have heard this story where they put in their terms and conditions when they did a gig that you were that they were to be no brown M&Ms in any of the backstage areas. So they wanted M&Ms, but not with brown ones. And it would be hidden in their terms and conditions. You might have heard that story because it kind of became a bit notorious. Like, why on earth does a rock band care about that? It's just a sort of fussy thing that rock stars do. But actually, they revealed later on, when they're writing books about it, they said, oh, it was very deliberate. We actually had a plan. Because what we found is a big rock band, they'd turn up at venues regularly and find that the venue wasn't adequate. They found that the people who were hosting them hadn't read the terms and conditions properly. And so they didn't realise that Van Halen needed speakers with this amount of power or the stage needed to be reinforced in this way or whatever. And so they'd find things, they'd break the speakers, they'd break the stage, and they'd say, it's just not good enough. And we need to find a way of smoking out the venues that aren't serious. So they put in, in their terms and conditions, like clause 103, there will be no brown M&Ms in any of the backstage area. Because they knew then that all they had to do was rock up at the event and they'd see brown M&Ms and they'd say, oh, these guys haven't read it. The gig's cancelled. And they put in their terms and conditions, if there are any brown M&Ms backstage, I think, what's the phrase? Uh, there will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area upon pain of forfeiture of the show with full compensation. In other words, if we find brown M&Ms around here, you will have to pay us for the gig and we're not going to do it anyway. And they found it was a very effective way of smoking them out because then instead of doing all the gig and the rigging and everything, you start to play and the whole thing explodes. They said, no, we just need to look and see if there's any brown M&Ms. And if there are, we know perfectly well they've not read it and we cancel the gig and we get the money. It's, in some ways, they, they've functioned it, uh, they've worked it as an idolatry fuse. They've said, yeah, okay, the M&M, that's our idolatry fuse. That, that's the moment where the system will reveal to us that it's been broken. Um, but we know, on the other hand, if they have got no brown M&M, so I see a, a bowl of M&Ms, it's got orange, blue, red, yellow, green, but no brown, I think this gig's going to be fine. And Nehemiah's day, the brown M&Ms, the idolatry fuse, included keeping the Sabbath, giving financially, whether they honour God's word in who they marry. Those are the kinds of things that give away where the heart is, is aimed. And in Nehemiah's day, if you keep those things, if you honour the Sabbath, you honour God in who you marry, and you honour God in your financial giving, you will almost the rest of the gig will be fine in Van Halen's terms, right? It'll, you can see someone's life and say, yeah, this isn't an issue. The fascinating thing is that in our day, the weakest bits of the circuit, the bits where you'd say, oh, if, it, if the circuit's going to break anywhere, it's going to break there. The brown M&Ms, if you like, the vulnerable bits that you think no one's going to notice that, they are very, very similar things. You might even say M&Ms stands for money and marriage. Or you might broaden it, money, sex, and power. They're the areas, as they are in almost every generation, where when our heart, if my heart goes wandering after God, it will almost certainly snap in one of those three areas. If there is one thing, I was like, oh, that's the clause, I just didn't, I didn't really notice that. I didn't, that's the area where you're vulnerable. Money, sex, and power are the Key areas in a culture like ours, and in many actually, that are the most vulnerable to the pressures of our very greedy, very celebrity-obsessed, and very sex-obsessed culture. Ours is a, our culture is very, very driven by money, sex, and power. And so if someone is wobbling on whether or not they want to worship God or worship idols, those are the areas that will go. There'll be One of those three will be the first to go, and they might all go. But on the other hand, if you see, or if I see, a Christian who is wildly generous with their money 
happy in obscurity for no one to know who they are, and faithful in their theology and practice of sex, whether they are faithfully single or faithfully married, the rest of the gig will probably be fine. And that's, a, that's speaking with a pastoral, a bit of pastoral experience, but also my, my own personal life and my friends thinking, yeah, if this person is generous with their money, if they are happy in obscurity, and they are faithful sexually, whether it's single or married, the rest of their, they're, they're, they're all gonna sin. We all sin sometimes, right? But the rest of the gig will be fine. Now you can walk in almost like pastors like coming in like Van Halen. Oh, there's no, the bowl has got no brown M&Ms in it. Oh, the rest of the gig will be fine. I don't even need to worry about it. This person loves God. This person's put God first because if they hadn't, these things would have broken. These, uh, these fuses would have snapped. The M&Ms would be all over the place. So compromise here exposes idolatry. And that's why Nehemiah makes such a big thing about it. And that's why I've made such a big thing about it. Because you think Nehemiah is not just saying, I don't like that practice because it seems to break that rule. Nehemiah is saying, no, no, no. If you compromise there, all of these other things will go with it. You are, in compromising on that issue, you are exposing that your heart does not truly honour the Lord. And that's why verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and pulled out their hair. And you and I would say, whoa, that's an overreaction. But Nehemiah said, no, it is not. Compromise here is catastrophic for the whole. Because before long, the whole nation will be worshipping idols and we'll be right back in exile where we were when I left Susa. And in many ways, it's a tragic ending to a book that in many ways has been a very helpful, hopeful book. Six chapters of rebuild, six chapters of rejoice, and then one chapter which shows that despite the new city and the new worship team, the sin of idolatry is still here. Nehemiah does all that he can. He has the law read by Ezra, the greatest teacher of his day. He throws all the furniture out the chamber. He confronts the officials. He threatens the merchants. He beats guys up. He chases people out of town. He pays for all the offerings. But in a sense, he fails. In a sense, Nehemiah's 13th chapter is one of failure. The book ends with sin still menacing Jerusalem, with Israel's idolatry still unresolved. And it's still true, isn't it, that anointed leaders, powerful great men and women of God, can rebuild city walls and they can restore corporate worship but the weed of idolatry in the human heart is too deep for mere confrontation to root out. And you find that in the Bible over and over again, that great reformers like Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Elijah, Nehemiah, they confront sin, they're very direct with it, but ultimately they all fail in the sense that the weed of idolatry is still there. Israel don't just need a leader who will confront them or teach them or correct them or even fund them. That's not ultimately all they need. They need to have a leader who will transform them, who will change their hearts deep down so that their desires go after the real God and not after those other gods. They need a leader who's not just going to tell them off, but a leader who's going to make them new from the inside out. And 450 years after Nehemiah, and it's great that Advent starts this week or next week, that leader that they needed finally arrived in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nehemiah 13 shows, if, like many, like few other chapters in Scripture, quite how deep our need for Jesus Christ is. Right? Because Jesus Christ arrives and he confronts idolatry just as zealously as Nehemiah, but utterly differently and infinitely more successfully. Because Jesus did read the law. 
And he did confront the Jewish leaders and he did throw the furniture out of the temple chamber. If you read Nehemiah 13 again with Jesus in mind, you think, actually, Jesus did a lot of those things. He was very zealous that God's house not be desecrated. What are you doing defiling the house of God? It's a house of prayer. So Jesus did a lot of these things. But whereas Nehemiah chased idolaters away, Jesus welcomed idolaters in. People like me, people who wanted to worship another God. And Jesus said, come to me. Jesus didn't just come to reform by gathering the righteous. He came to transform by gathering sinners. And so actually the very people that Nehemiah was chasing out of town, Jesus comes later and says, these people are going to follow me. They're going to sit with me. I'm going to go to their house and eat with them. Jesus didn't confront sin simply by saying, you can't come into God's house. Jesus confronted sin by saying, God is going to come to your house. And adulterers were changed. And greedy tax collectors gave away four times as much as as they'd stolen. He didn't beat people up and pull out their beards. He was beaten up and had his beard pulled out. And he didn't chase other people out of town. He was chased out of town himself, carrying all their sin and idolatry and sexual impurity and lust for power and greed and all of that on himself. And then dying for it so that they could forever be freed from it. And as Nehemiah prays that God would remember what he has done, Jesus, on the night that he's betrayed, said, I want you to remember what God has done as often as you drink it and eat it in remembrance of me. So we have a lot of hope that ultimately, even though Nehemiah's confrontation of idolatry ends in a sense in failure, the Lord Jesus Christ came to do what Nehemiah could not and to resolve the issue of idolatry deep in the heart, uprooting it entirely, and liberating people into a life where they are free from the gods of money, sex, power, and anything else to worship the true God and only him. Let's pray.